Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts with me, Carter Laren. This is a series that we do most Wednesday evenings dedicated to reviving the best ideas of the Enlightenment, ideas that built modern civilization, ideas like reason, individualist ethics, uh, the political concept of individual sovereignty, all good stuff, all why we're here thriving as a culture, or at least have been. Um, but we're also dedicated to crushing, crushing those cancerous ideas that have undermined modern civilization, the ideas that are rotting us from within collectivist ethics, uh, epistemological relativism, worship of the state. Um, some of these ideas came out of Enlightenment era, but I don't really count them as uh, Enlightenment ideas because they were more counter-Enlightenment, more reaction to Enlightenment ideas, uh, trying to preserve the status quo, preserve the first, second, and third estates, that kind of thing, and that the classism. Anyway, Rome may be falling, but we know how to rebuild it. We know how to actually make progress, not, not, not through progressivism. Progressivism has never been about progress. It's still not. But through uh, the application of individual rights, pol political liberty, uh, and the recognition that as humans we are not omniscient. Sorry. Uh, maybe Beverly is omniscient, but the rest of the humans are not omniscient. And the only way for us to, to check that our ideas actually correspond to reality is through a cognitive process called reason, which each of us is personally responsible for employing. You can't outsource that to China, especially not to China, but generally to anyone. Uh, I guess you could, but you would be failing at life if you did that. And we could all ignore you. So, and Beverly here in chat. Hi, everyone, by the way, in chat. Beverly uh, does confirm she is omniscient. So, um, oh, and Richard Petz says, speak for yourself. He is omniscient as well, apparently. So, so there you go. So there's a few of you, but I'm not. I'll just speak for myself. Anyway, uh, on today's agenda, we're going to talk about Sam Harris because he's in the, he's in the, the news, or at least he's in the zeitgeist at the moment. Uh, we maybe that's that's the bulk of the show. Maybe we'll go over Biden's student loan announcement today. Uh, I'm kind of contemplating whether I should just start limiting these shows to one topic. Um, but maybe we'll do that one if you guys really want to. Uh, but we are also going to finish up with some troublesome arguments. Um, I last time I said I asked a question, and I've started, I've posted this in the Discord server as well for those of you in the in the Discord community. You know, hey, what are some arguments you have trouble refuting? What are some arguments you'd like to make, but you're having trouble articulating? Got some responses. Please keep them coming in. Um, but I got some responses, so maybe we'll go over one of those tonight. Uh, anyway, don't forget to make sure you're subscribed. If you're on YouTube, uh, you know, they do like to unsubscribe people, so double check that. If you're elsewhere, like Patreon, or not Patreon, uh, Rumble or uh, Utreon, that was what was in my brain, or Odyssey, uh, make sure you're subscribed there as well. And, uh, and share this content. If you think that there's something in here that someone would like, uh, or that would change someone's mind or help them think clearly, please share this content. It does actually matter a lot to us. So, um, And sometimes there's evergreen stuff. A lot of Dangerous Thoughts is actually pretty evergreen. Not all of it. Some of it's pretty topical. But uh, So you can go back if there's something that you think we should have covered. We might have already covered it, so you might want to go check it out. So, Oh, also, sorry about last week's technology. Um, 
snafu for those of you who are here. Uh, it turns out that not only is Washington corrupt, but so are my audio drivers. Thanks, Windows. So, all right, let's get let's get started. By the way, this is a Wyoming mug. Shout out to one of the free states in the union. Okay. So let's talk about the Sam Harris stuff. Let's. I want to start by um, <laughs> Johnny Boy Quick Draw says Carter Linux. I use Ubuntu for a lot of things, but it's not appropriate for a lot of normal business work, Johnny Boy. Uh, <laughs> it's not something you can't get your team to all do Linux unless you're working at a dev factory. Okay. Um, anyway, we're going to talk about Sam Harris, but first we're going to, as an introduction to this conversation, we're going to talk a little bit about a couple common errors that, uh, that you'll see arise in people's thinking. And then we'll see, Hey, did, did Sam have these errors? I don't know. Um, one of them is something called the status quo bias. It's, it's, this is a kind of a cognitive bias towards the way things are currently you see this a lot right and and it's one of the you know if you, you take surveys in politics about like oh what should the government do about this particular issue usually the answer is kind of like what they've been doing about this particular issue and really like what they are doing now and if you suggest something like hey maybe they should change to what they did you know 50 years ago or you go farther the other way and say maybe they should do this other radically different thing it's like oh no no it can't ever be anything but the way it is now even though the way it is now uh evolved over time so um there's that kind of cognitive bias of like the way things are is kind of the way i want to keep them um there's something i think biologically that makes a little bit of sense right you don't necessarily uh want to be taking huge risks biologically but um we're not driven by our impulses anymore so anyway that's that's what the kind of status quo bias is. This can include ethics. Um, and often you'll see what's called the package deal fallacy here, where there's the purpose of something is uh, packaged up with the method of achieving it, the current method used to achieve it, and they're 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 treated as one and the same thing. So an example I I see often in uh, you know as a, someone who opposes, for example, uh, corporal punishment and spanking for kids. Um, there's a lot of pushback on that, largely because I believe of status quo bias. Uh, there's not really rational pushback on it that I've seen. Um, there's there's a lot of studies about it. It's not effective. There's a lot of reasons to to at least question the importance of it. But there are definitely people who say, well, no, it's a moral requirement. You have to do it. It's required for good outcomes. And, you know, typically these are people like, well, I was spanked and look how great I turned out. It's like, you know, Okay, that's thank you for that example. Uh, obviously, that's not an argument, um, but uh, you know. But the argument here is, if you don't support spanking, you'd get ethical. You won't get ethical adults. And then they go and they find examples of unethical or dysfunctional adults who also weren't spanked, and they are like, see, therefore, right? And that that's a logical fallacy. Obviously, it's kind of a, some kind of variation on, I don't know maybe the commutation of conditionals, I'm not sure what it is. But basically, it's like, well, if you don't do this, then you won't get this. And it's like, well, I observed the not this, therefore, there must also be or I observed that both of these things were, you know, didn't happen in reality, therefore, my proposition is true. And it's like, well, that's, you ignored the cases of people who are bad, 
and were spanked and the piece of people who were good and weren't spanked. So, um, you know, but that's an example of like that kind of status quo. There's some other stuff that's maybe uh, you don't even notice, like um, the idea that marriage at the age of 13 is totally fine. That used to be, I mean, I can't fathom it, but that used to be a couple of, you know, rewind a few hundred years and you know, that was totally moral. And anyone who suggested that, you know, that was immoral and should wait, like, well, hey, that's the norm. That's the moral. Why would you want to change this dramatically? And of course, now, if anyone suggested that, most of us would go, it doesn't, that's gross. Um, so, uh, and, you know, so it, it can go kind of bow, both ways. You can have, you know, you can have things get better, things get worse, whatever, but we typically compare things to the norm. Um, I guess another example is that's that's controversial that will trigger people is is monogamy is the the only sexual the only ethical sexual relationship that can exist between two people, right? That's an idea that's currently losing traction. Whatever you think of it, it's losing traction in society a little bit today. Um, you can say, well, that's bad that it's losing traction. It's good, but um, the fact that it is the way it is, like that it has been a certain way, is not the argument for it. If you want to make an argument for it, you got to make an argument for it. Status quo is not an argument. So anyway, there's a status quo bias. Um, oh, and obviously the classic example from libertarians here all the time. Like, if you don't have a government, who will build the roads? Because obviously the government right now pays for the roads to get built by stealing money from you. Uh, so who, hey, who will steal the money and you know pay for the roads? It's got to be the way it is now. Can't imagine a different way. Um, and so, like I said, status quo uh, bias, like the status quo might be good. It might not be good. It's never an argument. Um, and there's a reasonable way, if you wanna, you wanna challenge the status quo, there's a reasonable way to do this. There's the famous, I don't know if this is apocryphal uh, or it really happened, but there's the G.K. Chesterton's bridge story, uh, not bridge, uh, fence story. If you, if you come across a fence in the middle of a road uh, and you wanna take it down, he would say like, oh, you have to, you can't take it down until you can tell me why it was put up in the first place, which is this like built-in inertia, which is kind of rational. Like, why why are we why are we making this change? There's probably a reason why the status quo of the fence is the way it is. But and that, and that's good, and I I think that's that's smart. On the other hand, proper thinking does mean being aware of your status quo bias, and so the inverse kind of of the G.K. Chesterton stuff is also true. You can't support the fence just because it's there. Uh, you, you, like if you want to support the continued existence of the fence, you should be looking for both reasons, you know, why it's there, why it was put up in the first place, but also why it shouldn't be there. Can the purpose be achieved another way? There was maybe a purpose for that fence. Is there a better way to achieve that purpose? Um, you know, have other options been, been tested? So this is this conflation of the purpose and the goal, right? The goal with the spanking stuff was, well, we want moral adults. And it's like, well, if you don't, if you don't, uh, support, I uh, sorry, I said the purpose and the goal, the method and the goal. If you don't support this particular method, you don't support the goal. Obviously, that's not true. Or if you don't support uh, the fence, then you don't support the goal of the fence. Well, that's not true either, right? So that's that's that kind of that package deal. And so that's, um, that's a little bit about status quo bias, and we all kind of have it, but it's something we got to pay attention to. All right, the other, this isn't the other thing. It's not a logical fallacy. It's just, uh, 
a crap belief system that I want to point out because it's common. And this is called state theism. I don't know who coined this term. Uh, I don't think I did. I've been using it for a long time. I don't think I would credit myself. I'm, I'm sure I got it from somewhere. I just don't remember where. So credit to Anon who coined the term state theism. Um, and state theism is, is a religion. Um, now, when you have religions, if you look at a traditional religion like, you know, Catholicism or whatever, um, you have the, the role of the church, which is the institution that, that represents that religion. Um, and one of the roles, that it fills a lot of roles, churches fill a lot of roles, but one of the roles that a church fills is, is they, they provide uh, fill-ins for philosophical reasoning or like answers to, to questions. They're, they don't really do philosophy often. Um, and I know theologians will disagree with me there, but they don't, they, they typically have an answer, but not, they're not necessarily doing a, a lot of philosophy. So, but they at least have answers to some, like they have a, a, a map for some philosophical questions. So like, so in metaphysics, they'll define reality. This is what reality is. It looks like that, blah, blah, blah. And they'll have, you know, if you're, is it Hinduism? That's like, well, reality is the earth is on the back of a turtle, which is on an elephant or something. I don't I don't remember, but like that's that's the reality, and that's they've defined it for you. Done. Um, they'll define an epistemology, which is this: you know, what is valid knowledge, and what's not. So, who can have divine revelations, right? And and are divine revelations considered knowledge? And if if so, from whom are they considered knowledge? When is the Pope infallible? When and and when is what he's saying not uh, not infallible? Um, because not everything he says is even according to Catholics is infallible. Um, you know, is science valid or not, right? So on the one hand, you could have maybe the Catholic Church as an example fighting against Galileo. But on the other hand, you know, you had the Anglicans saying, Isaac Newton's good to go, right? Uh, you know, he published Principia, and they didn't, they didn't throw him in jail or push back on him. And of course, one of the differences there is they could incorporate his... Um, discoveries much more easily than they can incorporate Galileo's, which are much more contradictory to the current doctrine at the time. But they define, uh, they tell you what, what proper epistemology is. Um, and of course, the obvious branch of philosophy that, that religion um, has, you know, a template for, uh, answers for, is they define, uh, they define a moral code. And of course, I'm laughing because Richard Pett says it's on your elephant, Carter. I think he means the earth. This is, that's like Jonathan Haidt and Hinduism all wrapped into one. It's such an inside joke, Richard. No one will get why I chuckled, except for you. Anyway, um, so so religions have, obviously, ethics, and they'll define a moral code and enforce it. So in Christianity, you have the Ten Commandments, um, or maybe that's more in Judaism. Uh, I think in Christianity, the, the focus is more on scriptural interpretation uh, for the New Testament, right, because that supersedes the laws of the Old Testament. Um, and depending on the political situation, those moral, uh, that moral code that's defined by the church will either be enforced through social pressure or the state can be, can be forced if, it's, if the church has a relationship with the state that's, that's positive there. So, um, so yeah, I mean, th those are the things that a religion does. Now, this is one of the reasons why, um, if you care about 
values, if you care about ethics and, and philosophy, leaving a religion is actually quite emotionally difficult, right? I, I haven't told this story too often, but I have told it before. You know, in my early 20s, um, I, I had been raised a, a fundamentalist Christian, and in my early 20s, I struggled uh, with, with it, and I ended up leaving the religion, and we won't get into the whole story, but um, what, the, what the real struggle for me was, was uh, I recognized that if I was going to abandon the, the Christian religion, I would need a foundation for metaphysics and epistemology and ethics. Like, those were going to be, I couldn't rely on them anymore. And of course, there's a lot of things that I liked about them that I thought were, you know, thou shalt not kill is not a bad rule, right? So it's scary to detach yourself from uh, an ethical system. And uh, and that certainly brought me a lot of heartburn and um, it made it difficult, right? It was It's, it's scary to to accept that, okay, I now have the responsibility for myself to determine this stuff. I don't have to do it from scratch, right? There's other religions I could draw from. There's people that are not religious who've written many things, and philosophers and whatever. So, like, there's a there's a plethora of information. I don't have to start from scratch, but I do have to... It's my responsibility to accept or reject arguments at that point and, and figure out what I think fits and what makes sense. And that's scary, right? Because when I was a Christian, I didn't have to ask why these were the ethics. Um, and now that burden of responsibility was became mine. Like, okay, why, why is that the ethical system? Like, why do these ethics make sense? Why is this what's being chosen? Um, and that's, you know, that was, that was really scary. So, so that's really difficult. And I don't know, I don't know Sam Harris's background, but, uh, when when people uh, decide to not be religious, often they call themselves atheists. Of course, Sam Harris being one of the, I think they called them the four horsemen of atheism. I don't remember what they called them, but like he was one of the big, big atheist thinkers in the movement, so-called atheist. I'm not, I don't, I don't call him an atheist, but he called himself an atheist. And I think most atheists view him as, you know, one of the, the priests of atheism, which is uh, obviously a contradiction. Um, but what happens is uh, a, a lot of a lot of people who who proclaim their lack of belief in a religion um, they they replace many of those functions of the church um, with the state and institutions in much the same way they would if they were just staying in a religion. Um, so you know, metaphysics is maybe less of an issue. Although I could probably make an argument how they replace some of their metaphysics with, uh, with with the state. Says so certainly in in the book 1984, there's a kind of metaphysical replacement. This is what's true, and the, or this is what's real, and this is what isn't real, right? Um, they definitely place they replace the the epistemology with uh, state religion epistemology, right? This the state. And when I'm saying the state, um, I'm, I'm including in it the plethora of institutions that are intertwined with and connected to the state um, through uh, financial and, and cultural and social relationships. Most, almost always, there's a financial relationship. So, you know, pick a university, it gets a bunch of funding from the state, uh, the state 
pulls people, you know, recognizes that institution in some way because there are accredited institutions, which is a thing, and you know, um, they give preference to people from certain institutions. So there's there's relationships there, and so um, that 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 cabal, that state and, and its ancillary institutions um, and related institutions, which we could call the cathedral if we wanted to. Um, that that it replaces the church for defining what is what is knowledge epistemologically so uh, an obvious recent example fauci said it therefore it's true he is the science fauci is the science right when you question me you're questioning the science right that's a very clear cut i mean that's a fun example because you do you don't usually see them admit it that openly um but of course he did um thankfully he's retiring but don't think that's going to be good because i'm sure he'll be replaced by someone younger and worse. Yes, it can always it can always get worse. Um, but so you, you have uh, another another thing that you have is progressive experts in an administrative state that become the arbiters of knowledge. Remember what progressivism is, it is the it a belief in a large administrative state to manage things. So it's a, it's, it's a belief in the administration by experts of a of a um, of a, a political territory, right? So, uh, a lot of a lot of progressives like to pretend that what progressivism is about and has always, it's always been about caring about people and moving forward. And like, no, it has never been about any of that. It's always been about an administrative state. That's what progressivism has been about. It's been about experts running an administrative state, and of course, that makes these experts the arbiters of knowledge. You see all the time um, articles like experts say blah blah blah. Experts say right. Who's experts? It's not it's not an expert that I would use, right? Uh, it's not an expert that you might know. Um, it's people like Paul Krugman, right? No matter how many times Paul Krugman is wrong, he's still right because he's the expert. We gave him a Nobel Prize in economics, so even though you know he knows less economics than my thirteen year old, he's right, right? He's, I mean, he actually knows quite a lot about economic theory. They're just all bad theories, right? He's an expert in being wrong. That's what his, his PhD is. It would be like getting a PhD in astrology and, and claiming that you're the person who can guide us to get to the moon because you have an astrology degree. It's like, well, that's, that's nice, but you know, astrology and physics and astronomy aren't the same thing, right? Um, and that's, that's kind of, you know, but th those become the experts. And so, he defines what is correct in terms of, uh, you know, economic knowledge. Um, another example, I guess, hey, this particular storm or this particular heat wave, this is climate change, right? They're telling you what it is. They're telling you what it is. They're not giving you facts and asking you to evaluate. They're just telling you that's, that's the state defining knowledge, right? Especially when they say you're a blankety blank denier or whatever, and like, you know, you're denying their knowledge. You're denying their epistemological supremacy. Uh, and also, the state theists turn to uh, the state for ethics. More specifically, most of the the Western style state theists, the who the, those who aren't, uh, you know, fans of dictatorship outright, what they replace with ethics uh, is basically just statistics. Uh, statistics is ethics, right? That's what democracy is. Statistics is ethics. That's 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 how you define democracy in a very succinctly. Uh, of course, most of the intellectuals that that are state theists have a little. There's a little asterisk, 
right? Statistics is ethics, unless I disagree because I'm smart and I care, right? That's usually, that's usually how they, how they view it because they view themselves as part of that apparatus in some way. So they get to have a say in, in what the ethics are. Um, they're like deacons, deacons in the, in the state, the church of the state. Um, and of course the state also enforces ethics, right? They, they are, these are the people that often conflate ethics and politics. Ethics is politics. It's the same thing, right? And this is, they do it in little things. Um, uh, they'll say being charitable is good. You should help poor people, right? Now, I can make an, an argument why it's neither good nor bad, uh, and it's just a benevolent thing you could do, but let's assume for a moment that it's good, fine. They, like, you should, you should do this thing. You should help poor people. Well, uh, they conflate that with, therefore, we should tax people so we can help poor people. That's the same thing. Of course, they're not the same thing at all. That's state enforcing the charity, and it's much different than charity. It's not charity in any way. Um, but they kind of conflate those two things, that taxes are, that that government program, I won't say taxes, but government programs to help poor people, they conflate those with charity. That's not charity, right? Um, but that's how the government would do it. And that's how the government, that's how government does it. Um, and then there's big things, right? Uh, there's big things. They'll, they'll say, well, without the law, without the state, we'd, we'd all be running around raping and killing people and pillaging, right? Um, it's similar to, uh, I recently watched the show, the show Afterlife that Ricky Gervais is in, which is uh, raunchy, but funny. Um, and he's having an argument with someone. This is about religion, but I, I immediately, when I heard this, I thought of people's devotion to the state and their 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 assumption that ethics come from the state, that what's legal is moral, right? Which is not the same thing at all. Um, and this person was saying, like, well, without... I don't know what religion she was, but without this religion, uh, you know, you would just go around raping and killing as much as you want to. And, and Ricky's answer was, I do go around raping and killing as much as I want, which is not at all. I don't, I don't want to do that because I'm a good person. So um, the state's kind of similar. It's like, well, if we don't, if we don't have, you know, if we don't stop people from doing this, blah, 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 like, okay, well, you get, you get the war on drugs with that kind of stuff. Um, and you say, well, it's unethical to shoot heroin into your veins, therefore we'll build an a giant apparatus of dog shooting agents to go um, make sure that only criminals make money off of heroin and it's uh, every place you would do it is unsafe and there's no standards. Uh, and that when you're addicted, you're less likely to see, seek help. We'll do all that stuff. So so state, state theism, in my view, is not any different from a religion. It may actually be worse than a religion. I guess it might depend on the religion. But state theism is a religion. And if we want to actually be be rational, rational? Did I say rational? That's not a word. Um, if we want to be rational, then um, it's it, on the epistemological front, we need to recognize that there is a knowledge system, which we talked about um, previously. Um, and and I think I, I sung the praises of Alex Epstein for... Uh, articulating the elements of the knowledge system in fossil future. But there's a knowledge system. So experts say is not knowledge about reality. We need to understand epistemologically that there is this knowledge system. We need to dismiss arguments from authority. Fauci's not the science. 
We need to recognize the complexity of the system and the bias of the humans running things. Um, some of it's intentional bias, some of it's unintentional. It takes a little bit of work and intellectual honesty to come to basic conclusions, right? Um, you know, we can use climate, climate change as an example. Uh, at first, I assumed that, uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if I've ever talked about this, but when I was in high school, I worked for the New York Public Interest Research Group, which is a lefty organization. Um, I think Ralph Nader started the public interest research groups. Anyway, uh, we ran around with a bunch of environmental causes. I remember pushing like the Waste Reduction and Packaging Act, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, global warming was a thing. Um, and uh, although less of a thing way back then. But, you know, we had, we had all of this. The, uh, I had been indoctrinated into all this. Well, this is global warming is catastrophic and it's, you know, blah, 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 and climate change. And of course, then I heard counter arguments later in life because I started looking into it. And there were counter arguments that were literally like, it's not, the temperature isn't going up at all. CO2 has no man-made, the man-made uh, climate change is a, is a hoax and it, there's nothing to do with it, blah, blah, blah. And of course, it took work just for me to get to a very basic conclusion about it, which I'm confident in, which is, it's real and it's not catastrophic, and and we should be careful about how we uh, react to it because there's a you know the there's huge consequences to a lot of the proposals. That's not very like that's not super nuanced. That's not super like I don't know how many degrees or whatever. Like I'm not. I spent a lot of time to get to that basic conclusion. That time was necessary because of the complexity of it and because of our knowledge system, right? So that's my job epistemologically to do. Um, not trust the state. So that's how you have to be, you have to be independent, an independent thinker from the state. And ethics, you got to reject statistics as an argument. Um, you got to stick with ethical principles, even if you think you're smarter than everyone else and they're all wrong, you still got to stick with your principles. You can't, um, you can't violate them just because you think you're, you're better than, than others. Um, and that you know that you should be in charge that you know better you got to reject like i said you got to reject statistics statistics as an argument um like you know, and when i say reject statistics i mean 51 percent of the people think this is x like thinks x is bad or x is good well who cares um and in politics obviously uh, the entire existence of the state if you're rational this doesn't mean you have to agree with me in your conclusions, but if you're if you're going to approach this this question rationally, the entire existence of the state needs to be justified ethically. I can't do it, which is why I don't push for particular forms of government other than like, please, let's get smaller and smaller and smaller. And I'm pretty sure eventually we could get rid of all of it. But, you know, let's just move in a particular direction that I'm that I'm sure about. Um, but as for like actually justifying the existence of it at all. uh I've never heard anyone justify the existence of it to a to a in a way that is satisfactory to my judgment. Um, and you know, fine, maybe you have, um, but certainly any particular instance of a state like this particular system, certainly that needs ethical justification. And and I can certainly justify, for example, one particular system as being better than another system. Right? I can say, okay, well, clearly. Uh, a constitutional republic with an attempt to uh, recognize individual rights and uphold them is better than, uh, you know, socialism or, you know, communism. So, but this, you know, but doing all this requires recognizing the difference between ethics and politics and not conflating them. And state theists, state theists often tend to 
conflate these things. Not always, and not in all cases. All right, so those are the two things we're talking about. We talked about state theism and status quo bias. Let's talk about Sam Harris. Um, oh, before I do that, let me look at uh, some super chats. I don't know if they're super chats. They're like member notifications. I'll Fight You Naked says um, he's been a member for 17 months. Thank you, I'll Fight You Naked, and congrats. He says, my essay, What's With Sam, holds up. It's pinned. Oh, I haven't seen I haven't seen your essay. I'll check it out on your Twitter. Um, and G-Man says, if you're going to be part of a religion, we might as well pick one that has a chance of saving your soul. <laughs> I see. Okay, yeah. Well, but they would say this has a chance of saving, I don't know. I, I don't know if they would say their soul. Who knows? Um, but most religions would argue that they have a chance of saving your soul. That doesn't narrow it down too much, G-Man, but yeah, I get it. Okay, so Sam Harris was on trigonometry. Um, now, I, I should upfront say uh, what my relationship with Sam Harris is. I don't mean like I know him at all. I just mean my relationship to his work. Uh, I, I read End of Faith uh, way back a long time ago, which I think is one of his first books, if not his first. I thought he was you know, smart and rational and courageous, and I, I liked the book. I thought it was well-written. I wasn't so into his... He started getting into, like, the value of LSD stuff and whatever. I'd, I didn't read that stuff. I wasn't super into that. Um, but I do understand his motivation for it a little bit. Uh, I have the Waking Up app. I pay for it on my phone. Um, maybe I should stop. But I have the... I like his Waking Up app, um, which is focused on meditation. And I think he does a good job, and he does a rel he has a relatively rational approach to the motivation behind meditating. Um, but if, well, I would say he has a hundred. He has, a, from what I can tell, a completely rational approach to the motivation behind it. Um, but of course, you know, he does make philosophic mistakes in in his um, exploration of meditation. Um, you know, I think one of the most glaring ones is. There's a point where he's trying to induce a particular psychological state to get you into this state, and it's quite a powerful state, and it's helpful uh, for for his goals that I would say are rational goals. And the, his goal there is to help you kind of ultimately understand how your mind works, and uh, so you can kind of better manage yourself and make your life experience better. I'm not a neuroscientist; I think he might be, but I kind of think of it as like prefrontal cortex training. I don't know if that's correct at all, but like it's kind of not being led by random thoughts and being able to kind of manage manage yourself a little bit better. But during this discussion, he he jumps from this meta, metaphorical description of experience, which you can follow. A lot of people do this. They start with metaphor, and they're like, yeah, I get it. And you don't even realize that it's metaphor. But they'll be talking about stuff, and, and then and you, you don't realize you're actually having a metaphorical discussion. You're not really talking about concretes. Um, and he jumps from this metaphorical description of your experience into some wildly stupid philosophical conclusions, right? So an example is, he says, well, you look out at the world as an observer through your eyes and you observe things, but you can't observe the, observe the observer. You can't see your own head. Duh. You can't observe the observer. Therefore, no observer exists. There is no self, right? That is... I mean, I don't know how to say how stupid that is. That's the stolen concept fallacy. It's self-contradictory. It obviously violates the law of identity. I mean, there aren't many axiomatic premises in in logic, but the law of identity is one. So, uh, you know, he jumps to this, like, 
ridiculous, you know, and obviously if it were true that there weren't ourselves, his entire body of work could fall apart because what the hell is he doing then? Um, so I view him as someone who is smart, does a lot of great work, but ironically enough, even though clear thinking is something he talks about a lot, he falls victim to some pretty ancient traps that muddy his thinking in some ways. But in general, I've always liked him. I haven't paid super close attention to him. So I'll fight you naked says he has an essay called What's With Sam. I don't know how old that essay is, but uh, I, I haven't paid attention. So I haven't really had occasion to have a, an opinion on anything he's been doing since since Ben Affleck got pissed at him for criticizing Islam, which I, I liked that he was doing. So, okay. <laughs> Richard says, I think, therefore I don't exist. <laughs> kind of like it, it, it's it's kind of this stupid trap of like there's an there's a subject and an object right or or there's sorry there's an observer and a subject and uh because the observer observes the subject by definition he's not the subject himself he's the observer but then he can't observe himself so therefore he doesn't exist like that's basically it's not much more complicated than that that's basically all it is um, and he's he's making that argument to get your brain in a particular state, which I think is a good state and like it's helpful. But I think he should say it metaphorically, or do, like, but he he draws philosophic conclusions from this, which I don't know. Maybe it's too much acid. Okay, so the basic controversy here is last Wednesday, I think it was last Wednesday, um, he appeared on Trigonometry. He was asked about. Um, Trumpism, the Hunter Biden laptop stuff. And then they, later the inf interview got into uh, talk about woke. He, he's anti-woke in this sense, in that sense. So um, so that, that was the interview. Um, and there were clips going around. I actually didn't see any of the clips. I just heard what was in the clips so, and went and watched the, the video. So I don't know. Uh, someone before the show said, be careful. The clips don't represent what he said. I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what's in the clips. I, I watched the whole interview. Um, he also then clarified on Twitter he, he felt the need to like clarify what he said on Twitter because he got a lot of backlash for some things he said. And uh, I read his Twitter clarification and didn't clarify anything other than like, yep, I heard what you said. Thank you for repeating it. Um, it was different words. So uh, the Twitter clarification didn't add anything. Um, but I think as we go through what he said, I want to talk about what he said. I wanna I'm going to show you some clips. Um, and uh, these are the clips that I made, not, not from anywhere. So... Um, I think as we go through, you will see both status quo bias and state theism, and we'll talk about what's going on with him intellectually or psychologically, whatever here. So um, the first clip, he was defending the media's choice to dishonestly, and he admits this dishonest, dishonestly suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story prior to the 2020 uh, election. So he was... He was saying, yep, that was the right, they should have done that. They should have, it was, it was fine for them to do it. So let's listen to what he says exactly. Now that's not, that doesn't answer the people who say it's still completely unfair to not have looked at the laptop in a timely way and to have shut down the, you know, the New York Post's Twitter account. Like that, that's a, just a conspiracy, that's a left-wing conspiracy to deny the presidency to Donald Trump. Absolutely it was, absolutely, right? But I think it was warranted. Okay, so yeah, it was a conspiracy. He later says, well, it wasn't all left wing, but 
Uh, is it conspiracy? Absolutely it was, but it was warranted. Um, now, how does he justify this? How does he justify this intentionally dishonest manipulation of the population? Because that that's what he's saying, right? Um, and I think if we're going to look for this, the answer, the answer actually lies somewhere in uh, or one of the ways to find the answer. There's, it's not that hard, I don't think. But one of the ways to find the answer is um, you can see where he uses moral language and where he doesn't use moral language. Um, so at one point he says, I don't have a clip for this, I just have it written down. At one point he says, I do understand how corrosive it is for an institution like the New York Times to show obvious bias and inconsistency and dishonesty. Okay, so he understands the severity of what he's suggesting here. He understands it's corrosive and dishonest. But note something here. He calls it corrosive. He calls the inconsistency, bias, and dishonesty. He calls those things corrosive. He doesn't call them immoral. He doesn't call them unethical. In other words, he views the 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 bias and consistency and he says obvious bias too which is telling the bias and inconsistency and dishonesty he views them as a mere pragmatic reputational risk and that's very clear if you see how he's treating this like well people won't believe it anymore like they won't the new york times will lose credibility that's how he views this it's a pragmatic reputational risk so that's how he talks about that however when he talks about Trump, he calls him, and this is a quote, a once-in-a-lifetime moral emergency. Now, I think anyone who lived through World War II might take issue with that, but a once-in-a-lifetime moral emergency. That's how he views Trump. Now, oddly enough, in his Twitter, by the way, later he was like, well, I, it's not like I think he's Orange Hitler. I'm like, I don't know. You did say he was a once-in-a-lifetime moral emergency, but okay. Um, so... This is such an emergency for him. Trump is such an emergency for him. That by the by the way, if you're if you are familiar with his meditation app and like hear him normally, he seems very chill. He is very chill, whatever. It's odd to see how I mean he doesn't get visually worked up. His his affectation doesn't change a lot, but you can tell he's really he's really triggered. It's it's interesting to see him get really triggered about it. he really hates Trump. So this is such an emergency for Sam Harris that he's willing to overlook literally anything. I mean, he kind of uses those words. We'll see in a minute. But there's basically ethics can get thrown out the window as far as he's concerned. They're irrelevant because this is an emergency. Now, by the way, maybe a topic for another show is ethics always matter, especially in an emergency. <laughs> but to him, he's like, ah, it's an emergency. I don't care about dishonesty. I don't care about you know bias and whatever like i'm inconsistency out the window this is an ethical emergency we've got to do something about it. and now i said he's willing to overlook literally anything and i know that sounds hyperbolic but i'm gonna play a clip for you you tell me what you think listen i don't care what's in hunter biden's i mean hunter biden at that point hunter biden literally could have had had the corpses of children in his basement i would not have cared Right. It's like it's, there's nothing. First of all, it's Hunter Biden. Right. It's not it's like it's not Joe Biden. But 
even if Joe, like even the, whatever scope of Joe Biden's corruption is, like if you if we could just go down that rabbit hole endlessly and and understand that he's getting kickbacks from Hunter Biden's deals in Ukraine or wherever else, right, or China, it is infinitesimal compared to the corruption we know Trump is involved in. It's like it's like it's like a firefly to the sun, right? I mean, like there, there's just. It doesn't even it doesn't even stack up against Trump University, right? Trump University as a story is worse than anything that could be in in Hunter Biden's laptop. Look, I'll admit I did not follow the Trump University story closely, but as far as I know, the Trump University scandal did not involve dead children buried in John Don Jr.'s basement. Maybe I missed CNN that day. But, uh, I mean, what an outlandish statement. It's almost unbelievable that he is not a complete moron to hear it. And he says it with a straight face, and he means it. And he's not a moron. He's a smart guy. So he has framed this problem in his own mind. He has he's framed the problem uh, as a choice between two options. On the one hand... Well, I mean, I wouldn't, maybe not a choice, but the framing is there's this moral moral emergency on the one hand that we have to deal with. And on the other hand, eh, there's some corrosive reputational risk. Yeah. So this is a huge moral emergency. And it's worse than dead kids in Hunter's basement. All right, so obviously I think the, the next question here is, at least for me, is, wow, okay, what's the nature of this moral emergency, right? And it's important to note this is not political, and I believe him when he says this. He says it's not policy. He says my criticism of Trump is totally nonpartisan. You'll see later that he says he, I don't know if I have this in a clip, but he says he agrees with maybe half or more than half of Trump's policies. It's not political. I think we should take him at face value that because I don't think he's lying to us. I think he might be lying to himself. I don't think he's like I don't think he's misrepresenting his views. Um and and this is interesting to me because I thought about it for a moment. I said, okay, your problem with this guy is not political. What power does the president really have other than his political and like policy implementation power? Like certainly a president has cultural influence, but Trump manages to get that anyway. Um Basically, any action he takes in his capacity as the president is based on policy, and his like, it's policy driven. It's a it's a political, it's a partisan thing. Um, unless you literally think he's going to nuke the entire world on a whim, I, I don't understand what's not like. What else is there to be so scared of with him if it's not his policy, right? You could like if you were talking about the. Uh, I don't want to use his name, the famous mustached German uh, in, in World War II, you could say, well, you know, you're more likely to say it's, it's, you would be more likely to say about that guy, he's a fine guy, his policies are evil to the core. You'd be much more likely to say that than you would be to say, well, it's not, a, I don't have any policy problems with the guy. I just don't like hanging out with him because his mustache looks weird or there's some other reason. Like, 
it's you know it's it's just personal with him. That's what I don't like about him. It's not his policies. Auschwitz was great. Like that, you would never say something like that. It's his policies that are the problem, right? Um, because that that's where his power is being expressed. It doesn't matter whether he's a good artist or a nice dad or anything else. Like if that's it's the policy. So it's weird to me that he's like, well, it's not a partisan thing. I agree with a lot of his policies, but he's this existential threat to moral emergency. What non-policy thing about him is such an emergency? So what is it? So, well, fortunately, he gives us some insight into his thought process on this moral emergency. Let's listen to the next clip. It's not a matter of his, like, I probably agree with half of his policies or more than half of his policies. It's not a matter of policy. It's a matter of having someone who's totally unfit to have power be given more power than any person in a generation. And and he's unfit for in every possible way. It's like it's not it's not that he's just got a few screws loose. Like every screw is loose. Every screw that you would want totally cranked down is loose or non-existent in him. Um, and so yeah, so it's but that that's my argument. So he doesn't expound. He says. He's unfit in every possible way. Now, you know, maybe uh, the trigonometry dude should have been like, uh, can you give some example? Like, can you expound on this? And like, I, you are a neuroscientist. Do you like what? I think he's whatever. Can you just give me a couple examples? What are, what are the what are some of the screws that should be ratcheted down that aren't? And you know, nope, he doesn't expound on it at all. He's not asked to, but. Doesn't expound on it. They just, no, okay, he's unfit in every possible way. Okay, no explanation. Now, he says, that's my argument, but that's not an argument, right? That's just ad hominem. He's unfit and has screws loose. That's just an ad hominem. That's all it is. You might as well say he's a stinky pants. Like, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. It's, a, it's meaningless intellectually, right? And this guy's an intellectual. It's not like he doesn't have the vocabulary and wherewithal to articulate a position about what's wrong with Trump. But he doesn't. He screws loose. Okay. Right? How? If it's and maybe he's gonna maybe his answer will be it's obvious. Well, fine, then explain it to us. You're on you're on a YouTube channel, right? You gotta assume that everyone's not as smart as you are, Sam. Can you explain the obvious screws loose? And like, you can't just roll your eyes and be like, "Oh yeah, Trump, am I right? Am I right, Trump? Am I right?" No, you're not right. That doesn't. That's not an argument. That doesn't make you right. If you're right, you need to make an argument, right? So this is the op. This is a complete opposite of clear thinking. This is a sophisticated version of name calling with a pinch of condescension sprinkled in. That's what this is. So not only can he not cite actual evidence that Trump is an existential threat. By the way, he cites none in this whole thing. Not only does he do that, but he ignores evidence to the contrary. And let me make my argument for for that because, uh, yeah. Here's a guy who is capable of anything, right? He's not, he's not ideological. But he's again. He's he's a black hole of selfishness, right? He's 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 just. And so there's no telling what he's going to do. Um, and we cannot afford to have four more years with this guy. 
Okay, so he's repeatedly act. By the way, I, I'm not here to defend Trump generally. What I'm here to do is show you bad thinking, right? So anyway, he, he repeatedly acts as if Trump is so dangerously unpredictable as to be like an asteroid hurtling towards Earth. He uses that example. I don't have that clip, but he talks about it like, well, yeah, what if an asteroid were hurtling towards Earth, of course would have would get together and figure out how to stop it. Like that's that's his analogy. I should just tell him to chill out because he doesn't exist. Because he can't see himself. He can only see the asteroids. So um anyway, uh that that's his that's his analogy. He doesn't set examples of anything. And he says things like, and the, the clip you just watched. There's no telling what he's going to do. You know, Sam, uh, unless you were on an asteroid, we just had him as president for four years. We saw what he would do as president. We watched. In fact, I was disappointed at him not doing some things I wanted him to do. What did he do that was so reckless? Can you name some things? He's been in office. For, he was in office for four years. If he was so reckless and so unpredictable and so dangerous in that position... Please cite his track record of being unpredictable, dangerous in that position. Like, what did he do? What did he do in his four years that that leads you to say, we have no idea what he's going to do? I, I mean, if he had never been in office beforehand, maybe you could have said, who knows what he'll do because he's such a crazy guy. We've never seen him in politics. Okay, maybe. But we just had him for four years. And you're like, well, we can't afford another four years. Well, then give examples of his disastrous behavior that occurred during the four years, right? If he had accidentally nuked North Korea and we want to make sure that he doesn't accidentally nuke China or somewhere else to start a war, then like, okay, yeah, I, I got your point. Who knows what he's going to do? Look what he did. Or did he pardon serial killers? Right on, on Twitter, on his Twitter feed, Sam Harris says he doesn't think that Trump is orange Hitler, right? Okay, then. So what's the evidence? What did he do then? He also said, like, I don't think he's actually going to destroy the world. So, okay. So it's this moral emergency. It's this existential threat. It's like I'm comparing him to an asteroid that will destroy the earth, but he's not actually going to destroy the earth. And we had him for four years, and I'm not citing any example of anything that was egregious or horrible, but but you just know it. That's that's his argument. That's his entire argument. This guy's got a PhD. He's smart. That's his entire argument. I mean, it's embarrassing. The closest that he gets to an actual criticism of Trump was also in that clip. It was he called him selfish. He said he was a black hole of selfishness. That's the closest, like, it's a little bit of an ad hominem, but there's like a claim being made that's a little more specific there. He says selfish. That's the claim. Uh, now let's assume, by the way, that he doesn't mean selfish in the way that I would mean selfish, right? I would I would mean rational long-term self-interest guided by a system of universal, universal ethics derived from, you know, the requirements for human life, right? Let's assume that he means that in the colloquial sense. Even though he's a philosopher, uh, he should probably be more specific with words like that if he's a philosopher. He should probably be pretty clear about what he means. But let's assume he's using it colloquially to mean that Trump is greedy or predatory, disregards the rights of others. Okay. My next, if that's what he believes about Trump, I could buy that. 
if that's what he believes about Trump, my question is, what makes Trump special? Why is that? Does he not think that's true for every single president? Because I do. The difference between Trump and other presidents is not that some are predatory and have no regard for others and greedy and whatever and like power lusters. There's, that's not – they share that, right? You could make an argument that Trump might actually be less of that than others, but that's a separate issue. But like they, they share that. The difference is um, the other presidents behave with a patina of civility. They act like – modern aristocrats are supposed to act. They dress up their motivations and nature in kind of flowery, feel-good language. They're rarely blunt or rude or crass in public. So that's one difference. I think this bothers the intellectual class like Sam Harris emotionally, but I don't think it's the primary difference. I don't think that's the big thing that they have a problem with. I think it's the second thing that, that uh, other presidents do differently that Trump was, was different about. Um, the other presidents who again, I don't think you can make a decent argument at all that they're less predatory or more predatory or less predatory, sorry, less predatory than, I'm trying to, they're, they're similar, similar greed and power lusting and everything. I mean, but what they do do is they attempt to achieve their goals without dismantling the progressive God called the administrative state. That's it. They don't get up on a pulpit and say, we're going to drain the swamp. They say, the fine men and women in the swamp need to be pointed in this direction and given these funds and, oh, need to be tweaked over here. That's what they say. And Trump got up and said, Sam Harris, I'm going to kill your God. He said, drain the swamp. Sam's God is the state. Sam is a state theist. And he was reacting irrationally and emotionally because he is in panic that the moral emergency, the threat for Sam, is there's a guy who wants to kill his god or maim it in a major way. Now you'd say, what evidence do you have that Sam Harris worships the administrative state, right? How do you know he does? Well... There's a clip from this interview. Sam in this clip is arguing that anyone else, he's talking about like other politicians, even a random person, anyone else would be better than Trump. And here's the argument he makes. Here's why anyone else would be better than Trump. Let's watch. These are people who are normal politicians who are so much more constrained by predictable machinery right there's there's like there's there's such less of an opportunity there to destroy institutions that we have to rely on right if, with with any of those people in charge including a random person in charge a random person who's going to be terrified at the responsibility of the office and default to expert opinion you know uh, across the board that's what's terrifying at least a random guy is going to default to expert opinion. A random guy is going to rely on my beloved administrative state of experts. A random guy relies more on my God. Trump doesn't want my God. He's afraid that Trump is going to injure his God. 
that's what he's afraid of. I don't have this clip, but he says, you know, there's a one point in the interview, he says, what should well-intentioned people do who have a lot of power in these various ways? You know, running the New York Times, you're running CNN, you're running Twitter. What should they conspire to do under these conditions? And remember, these conditions are like, God is under attack. Well, the answer is anything. Anything. Because his God is, remember, his God, I'm not, I'm not using that in, I mean, it's obviously metaphorical in some sense, but it is his church. It is his his ethical code and his epistemology. Like, they're all intertwined. He's a state theist. That, that administrative state of experts is what he worships. So because he's a state theist, because he has status quo bias, because, by the way, Trump was never saying, like, let's, he, I mean, drain the swamp. We all knew he didn't mean actually, like, close the ATF, which would have been awesome. He just wanted to reform a bunch of stuff and blah, blah, blah. So he wasn't even really talking about murdering Sam's God. He was talking about maiming him, changing him. But Sam's got status quo bias. Nope, this is the way my God is. My God has to be this way. Only mild changes from politicians who may be just as evil and and whatever, but like they're going to enact their evil through the apparatus that I'm in love with and it will get minimally changed. Probably it will grow. Yay. That's Sam. Right? And as a result of that state theist and 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 status quo bias, what happens is because he has that bias and because he doesn't see it, because he doesn't know, he conflates nihilism with anti-government sentiment. Right? He conflates those two things. At one point during the, the interview, um, he was asked by, uh, I don't know the two guys' names. I know Constantine Kissin is one of them, but it's the other guy. Um, he's asked by, <laughs> I feel bad for the other guy because I think a lot of people are like, he's the other guy because Constantine Kissin is like the the front man a lot of times. But uh, anyway, the other guy asks a decent question. He, he says, look, um, he asked about the idea of Trump supporters being motivated by this feeling that DC just didn't care about them and wasn't working for them anymore, as if they ever did, but whatever. Uh, the, the, like, you know, they, you know, isn't the kind of, isn't it the failure of the Democrats and the left why people voted for Trump, why he turned, why people turned to Trump, right? And, and then people were like, well, anything's better than this. That was his question. And Sam Harris answers the question. He agrees, but listen to what he says about um, how he views the people who supported Trump and what, what he says about their attitude and how he characterizes them. And, and we're going to talk about this, but the reason he does this characterization is because he, he's conflating nihilism with anti-government sentiment. So let's, I'm going to play this clip. It's the last clip. Oh, yeah. No, I think that explains most of the, his support and certainly his success. Yeah. But, but I, think, I think we should be honest about how... Um, well, both uninformed and nihilistic by turns, that attitude is, right? It's just like, it's not, I mean, that that is like the, the clearest eruption of Thanatos, you know, in our lifetime, right? It's just like, let's, I'm, let's just burn it all down on some level. Like, he, this guy's our wrecking ball. We hate the elites. We hate the so-called experts. Go fuck yourselves. 
We're just going <laughs> to enjoy just watching this thing, you know, you know, swing through everything you care about and, and, uh, uh you know, just, uh, the sounds of explosions are going to just give us pleasure, right? Like that, like that's where we are with tens of millions of people in this country. So notice this conflation here, right? He's conflating this, this desire to alter the status quo in a significant way, maybe destroy it of, of a giant bloated, corrupt and evil progressive administrative state that has, been burdening the American people for decades and gotten worse and worse and worse. He's equating the the desire to destroy that with uh, the Greek god of death, right, Thanatos, and nihilism. Nihilism. Now, let's just look. Uh, the guy's a philosopher, so let's just uh, let's be precise in our language, I guess. Um, nihilism. Let's just look up the definition of nihilism. Uh, nihilism. Uh, noun. The rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. And then it says in, philosoph in philosophy, it's extreme skepticism maintaining that nothing in the world has a real existence. Okay. I don't think he actually means this in the philosophical sense because he used death and he's been speaking with colloquial language. So I don't think he's meaning uh, like philosophical nihilism. I think he's meaning the main definition, uh, a rejection of moral principles. Now... It's interesting. He calls Trump this wrecking ball, whatever. I called Trump from the beginning. I was calling Trump a bull in a china shop, which is why, you know, I was kind of cheering at the idea of Trump dismantling the administrative state. He didn't actually do it, um, by the way, uh, which is more evidence that Sam Harris has nothing to fear from Trump because he didn't actually do what I wanted him to do. He didn't dismantle anything. Um, but, uh, you know, he... he I was I was calling him this bull in a china shop. I was I was excited about him dismantling the Ministry of State. Now, I happen to be a voluntarist, uh, which means like my ideal is to get to this no government thing eventually. Um, but almost no one is a voluntarist. I'm like there's like four of us or whatever. Like there's there's not many of us. Um, most of the people that uh, even remotely supported Trump weren't minarchists or even small government people. They all, I mean, most of them just wanted a government. They want a government. They just didn't want this particular government. They felt it had gotten corrupt and bloated and too much in their face. They they preferred something more similar in size to, you know, the late 18th century, right? It's sort of how, how America founded in terms of centralized power and size. Like, they want to move towards that. They want to be left alone more. That's what they wanted. That's all. These aren't radical, crazy people like me. They're just, that's all. So Trump supporters did indeed want some dismantling or at least, you know, major reductions or some even minor reductions of the administrative state, right? He ran on drain the swamp. So yeah, they did want that. But none of that makes them nihilists. None of that makes Trump supporters nihilists. They didn't want to reject all moral principles. They wanted to reject the current state apparatus and replace it with something that they thought would give them more freedom to thrive and live. They're trying to make their lives better and the lives of other people better. It's like the opposite of nihilism. It has nothing to do with nihilism. It's not nihilism. It's not nihilism to want to burn down your precious bureaucracy and parasitic institutions that have been oppressing you. Like, that's, that's not nihilism. Now, maybe 
maybe he's super ignorant about the motivations of Trump supporters, and maybe he thinks that they just wanted to burn Washington down for no reason, just because they it's fun to destroy things. Well, that would be nihilistic, sure. But that's not what they were like, and I don't think he can honestly believe that. I mean, he might trick himself into believing that, but if he, if he looks, like that's not, what, that's not what they wanted. They wanted to burn down. The wrecking ball was for the administrative state in the same way that an animal wants to destroy his cage. That's the metaphor. They, they didn't want to, they're not trying to destroy your beloved state because they're nihilists. They want out of their cage. And that's not nihilism. That's the love of life. That's a positive healthy psychology that is a love of life that's i don't want to be oppressed anymore these guys in washington are taking my money they're telling me what i can and can't do they're 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 literally taking over i'm losing my freedoms i want to live that's that's love of life that's not nihilism so you're seeing this interview here uh this is a smart guy like i've said i know some of you think he's just dumb or whatever uh So he's mostly intellectually honest, I think, generally. I, again, I haven't followed him too much, but I think he mostly tries to be intellectually honest. But he's a state theist, right? I don't think he's actually, I don't think he's properly called an atheist. I would not call him a big atheist. I would not say he's an atheist supporter. He's not an atheist. He's a state theist. And he's got the status quo bias, so only one, only this particular state, and anything too far away from it is nihilism. Right? Like, wow, that's that's a little bit crazy, right? But it's it's that it's a, it's a it's a religious fervor, right? So, um, if we want to if we want to have some clear thinking, like, how might he be more clear in his thoughts on this issue? Right, and I'm not saying that he needs to do this all on his own. I'm assuming that he's—he's he's, surely he's heard counter arguments to some of his points. Um, he just needs to be open to some of these counter arguments, and specifically, like what kind of stuff should he be listening to, and how should he he react to this stuff? So I think I'm not saying he needs to kind of figure all this out on himself, but something he could open himself up to some things here. And one is, I want to throw his own advice back at him. Because uh, I think he probably says this. If he doesn't, he at least implies it in his meditation stuff. He probably says it outright. Um, hey, that really strong emotional response that you have, Sam, that should be a clue to you. That should be a clue that uh, you're not functioning at the moment in a, you're not doing a completely rational analysis. Now you can do a rational analysis and still then have a small, a strong emotional response. But if you're overwhelmed and consumed by that response and all of your analysis is based on justifying that response, that's a red flag. And you, we're all guilty of overriding our emotional responses sometimes uh, or being driven by one or the other. Like often for me, it's like, I haven't, like I know I'm supposed to do something uh, that's, that's better, but and like I rat, and like I, I feel a certain way, and I, and I, then I come to a conclusion that yes, that's the right thing to do, but I'm afraid to do it, and that fear is what gets in the way, or whatever. So, um, and I'm sure we, we all have stuff like that. So I'm not saying he should be perfect in this, but he is, you know, selling an application on your phone about mindfulness and clear thinking, and 
kind of mastering, uh, I'm not saying mastering your emotions, but being aware of them and, and not letting them uh, pull you this way and that, or not be controlled by them. So this is an area in which he focuses, right? The purpose of his meditation practice is to learn how minds work, to think clearly, blah, blah, blah. So I think he should be able to recognize this emotional response in himself. And I'm sure someone close to him has pointed out, dude, you're getting kind of worked up here. All right, that should be a, a moment for him to go, yeah, I am getting worked up. And not just rationalize it, be like, okay, what's really going on for me, right? And maybe that should prompt the question in him, hey, why is this my emotional reaction? Why am I so upset about the prospect of four more years of Trump, right? Because it's clearly an irrational and unhealthy reaction he's having. Um, what was so bad about the first four years? Like, did like the population get cut in half? Like, what was what what atrocities were committed? Like, why am I so upset? And if the only answer he comes up with is, "Well, I'm upset because there's tens of millions of people in this country who are actively nihilists," that's a it's a pretty bold and outlandish claim you might want to rethink. If you if you come to these conclusions that are crazy, it's a, that's quite a statement, right? Tens of millions of people are nihilists. They're actively being nihilists. Mm. You might want to think about that. I want to check that premise a little bit and think about it. Okay, if tens of millions of people were actively nihilists because they were this upset about whatever, how would that manifest itself? Probably not just in the presidential election, right? There'd be mass pillaging and destruction of society. Like things would be a lot worse. Things would be spiraling out of control if we really had tens of millions of of, of people who were so fed up that they were just like, we're just nihilists. We just want to burn everything down. Like if they really wanted to burn Washington down, Washington would be a cinder. They would burn it down. Like they can't. They're not actually nihilists, right? So what are some other possibilities? I mean, do we know, are there people who, who, if these people knew they were nihilists, would they be proud of it? Probably not. Like, maybe they're just behaving in a nihilistic way. But would they be proud of that? Oh, probably not. They would, they would need to believe something in order to not view themselves as nihilist. Right? So they would need to be like, okay, well, how are these, he, would, he should be thinking about this because this is, this is what he does. He should be thinking, okay, how are these Trump supporters? wanting to bring a wrecking ball to DC, but not recognizing that they're nihilists. Like, that's a that's cognitive dissonance. They don't, why are they not seeing that they're nihilists and they're behaving, or that at least in this respect, they're behaving like nihilists, but they also want to destroy it. How could they not notice this? And you could identify that contradiction, maybe spend some energy on it. And you might realize that there's a difference between nihilism and a political revolution. There is, and not even all of them want a political revolution. It was a pretty minor thing to vote for someone, right? So, like, okay, there's a, there's, a, there's a difference between being a nihilist and voting for a dude to make significant changes to the government. All right, maybe he could recognize that. Maybe he could, because he's a philosopher, maybe he could try and more clearly define his terms and identify his assumptions. And if he just did a little bit of, I mean, Look, we, we did the nihilist definition. Hey, what's a nihilist? What is government? Is destroying government nihilism? Like that's a 30 second exercise. And unless you're a moron, you go, well, no, obviously destroying government's not nihilist. By definition, that's not nihilism. 
Are there any examples in which destroying your government isn't destroy isn't nihilistic in history? Well, gee, uh, I can think of some recent examples where it's the opposite of nihilism, where it's the self-preservation of life. Hey, I would like to overthrow Stalin. Nihilist. Clearly, that's not nihilism. There's plenty of examples where, you know, even wanting to completely overthrow your government, not to mention Germany at the same time or a similar time, right? Like, there's plenty of examples where clearly wanting to outright overthrow your government isn't nihilism, let alone saying, I I think we should vote for someone who's going to, like, reduce the size of government slightly. I mean, best case, best best possible case, what was he going to do? Reduce the government 10%? Like, is that, like, what's the, that, that would be the most outlandish thing imaginable. I mean, I would love it, but like one of the most outlandish, unachievable, crazy things he could have done was reduce the size of the government by like 10%. That's nihilism now? So look, you would look at this and you say, oh, look, these people believe that their lives will be better with this different kind of government. That's not nihilism, Sam, right? That's not nihilism. And you're being hyperbolic and silly and destructive, calling it nihilism. Now, the reason state theists like Sam Harris can't see this is very similar to the reason, like, it's funny because he would use this argument, I'm sure, against against Christians. He would, see, he would say the same thing. He would say, well, well, I think the church should go. And the Christians would say, well, what about morals? They're the, very, that, you know, the church is the foundation of ethics. And he would say, no, 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 there's other options for ethics. The church and ethics aren't the same thing. That would be his argument. Of course, you know, he would go on to pick a worse set of ethics, which is atheism, but like that would be his argument. And it could be applied right back at him, right? Hey, this government should be significantly changed and reduced and this department should be shut down and blah, 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 right? And he's acting like, well, <gasps> what about, eth that's the foundation of ethics. The government's the foundation of ethics. How could we do that? No, Sam. There are other options, dude. There are other options. And you can always challenge your own arguments. He should be challenging. He's a thinker here. This is his job. He should be challenging his own arguments. Like, am I sure about this? How would I convince Sam Harris? If he, Sam Harris should say, how, should I, how would I convince myself if I believe the opposite? I'm saying every screw is loose in this guy. What would I say to someone who said every screw is loose? I would say, well, which screws? Cite examples of screws, right? I, look, I would like for Sam Harris to come around, uh, but that's really only likely if his only problem is the status quo bias. It's very unlikely because he's a state theist, because state theism is a religion, right? And he's probably the first one to know these studies. He probably knows them better than I do. There's plenty of studies about arguments against uh, religious beliefs strengthen religious beliefs. <laughs> like hearing counter evidence strengthens the belief themselves. So the guy's a religious, he's a religious nut. He's a religious fanatic, right? Sam Harris is a religious fanatic, and his religion is state theism. All right, so he's not... He's not likely to come around. All right. Uh, there was a super chat that I just missed that I'm going to put back on screen. This is from Judge Lott. Judge says, do you think the whole nihilism shtick is just his way of trying to morally justify his vitriolic hatred for a certain type of people? Um, I think he, well, to some extent, yes. Um, 
but I don't think it's conscious. I don't, maybe I'm naive and you guys can tell me I'm naive. I don't think Sam Harris is being intentionally dishonest with us or himself. Um, I think he honestly believes, I mean, think about it this way, Judge. He he compared Trump to a an asteroid that was about to destroy the world. Now he, of course, he said some contradictory things because he also said in his Twitter, like, well, I don't believe he's Orange Hitler. He also said during the interview, I don't actually think he's gonna destroy the world, it's unlikely. But he also compared him to an asteroid. So um, if he really feels, he clearly feels this way about Trump. He clearly believes that Trump is an existential threat. It's a moral emergency. I mean, I think we should take him at that face value. And if, if, if that's what he believes on that front, um, then my guess is that, that his view of Trump supporters, if we want to nuance it a little bit, is that they are fed up as, uh, by the way, the guy's name, the other host's name was uh, Francis. People in chat told me that. Yes, Francis. I forgot his name. Sorry, Francis Foster. I'm sorry, Francis Foster, for forgetting your name. Um, but like Francis asked him, like, do you think it's reaction to, to these feelings? And like, and I think, and Sam said yes. And I think, I think his characterization, if we wanted to give him the benefit of a little bit of nuance here and say he was speaking extemporaneously, would probably be, well, uh, I don't think they're active, like, they're not like conscious active nihilists, but they're having an emotionally nihilistic reaction to feeling uh, unheard in Washington. And it, that's just because they're not as smart and awesome as I am. I mean, he wouldn't say the words exactly, but that's the, that's kind of the implication. The dumb, these dumb people, because he also called them uninformed, um, and he characterized them at other points in the interview as like QAnon people. And of course, there is a, a an element of that, but I don't think there's tens of millions of QAnon people. I think most of the people that voted for Trump and like him, and all the ones that I know, aren't you know they think QAnon is a ridiculous, stupid thing. There, the people that I know that like him are smart and and you know. <laughs> hated Hillary Clinton and thought they'd give Trump a chance and whatever. So um, I, I I think he, I don't think he believes that they are all nihilists because they're evil inherently. I think he believes that they're behaving in a nihilistic way because they're stupid and they don't understand. Um, and they're all dumb. He cited Alex Jones a lot. So he thinks they're all dumb QAnon Alex Jones listeners, right? Um, he, he also hates Alex Jones. But, uh, so I, I think that's what his position would be. We'll see. <laughs> Richard Pett says, yeah, Carter, can Sam spell condescension? Okay, and now I have to share. My daughter found this little sign. in a, we, we were actually in Wyoming, and she found a little sign that she loved. We should have bought it. She loved this sign, and it said... Um, <laughs> I'm condescending. That means I talk down to people. I think Sam should have that sign in his office uh, because I think it's a good, an appropriate sign for him. Yeah, a little bit of. Little bit. All right. Uh, it's almost it's almost six thirty my time. I think I'm gonna, in the interest of time, I think I'm gonna skip the student loan stuff. Um, Maybe I can do another show at some point about the student loan stuff. Um, it'd be short, but 
I, the reason I want to skip it is that I want to get into, I told you guys we we're going to do this like troublesome, troublesome arguments section where we're going to help each other with some argumentation. I don't know if I'll be any good at this particular one, but you know, it's the one that's bouncing around Discord, so I gotta use it. I think this came from Motown, but he keeps changing his name in Discord to these weird inside jokes between him and Beverly, which is odd. And I don't actually know who it was, but I think it was him. Um, so he was talking about this. LinkedIn has a new policy. Well, not a new policy, they knew a feature. I guess it's six months ago. Uh, and he was asking about this. So it's a feature that lets you, um, it's for building a more diverse and inclusive platform. So you can see where this is going. Um, it lets you display your gender pronouns, basically. There's more to it, but that's about it. And there was some kind of question which uh, was like, how do you argue with people and saying they shouldn't uh, uh, display their pronoun? Like, why is it a bad idea whatever? Um, and it wasn't, it's not actually clear if we're arguing with people who are not trans to not use the pronouns or people who are trans or whatever. So I'll kind of cover this generally um, in the last half hour or so. My first inclination here would be, uh, I'm not saying don't have this argument. Certainly if you want to have the argument, you can, and we'll go through, you know, what I think about this case. But um, someone's compulsion to put pronouns in their bio is a symptom of a much deeper disease. So probably start there. Uh, and not start with the pronouns in the bio. Um, now, obviously, compelled speech needs to be opposed. I think um, that's a separate argument. I'm going to talk about that one too much because that's a separate argument. I assume this is kind of a voluntary thing. Like they maybe, I, I would want to ask them if they feel pressured to put pronouns and then to kind of dive into there. Asking why is good. Like getting getting deep into like what's their motivation for things does help. Um, but then, you know, the general argument is like, well, this is a little thing. It costs you very little, and it, it really means a lot to the trans people. It's so meaningful and impactful. Why not do this just little thing? That's all we're asking. And only the Grinch or some really horrible curmudgeon like Carter would not do a little thing that causes so much happiness for, for this other person. That's kind of the argument. Um, and my first point on that is it does absolutely nothing for a real trans person. Um, putting their pronouns in their bio might help them maybe, and they get recognized the way they want, but putting your pronouns in your bio, if you're not trans, doesn't help a trans person at all. They don't give a crap. They know what to call you. They know that everyone else knows what to call you. It's not a mystery. Uh, what you're doing, who it means something to is activists, trans activists. That's who it means. So that's who you're helping. You're not helping a trans, you're not helping the normal. I, it's weird to use the phrase the normal trans person, but there are trans people who are not radical leftist crazy people, right? Like they don't care about your pronouns in your bio. The people who, for whom it means something are the activists. Um, and the reason you put it in is to signal to the activist and the reason it means something to them is is it's a virtue signal. <clears throat> Maybe I wouldn't use the term virtue signal with someone, but I would say, well, look, uh, 
it's a you're signaling to them that you agree with their agenda, that you're supportive of their agenda. It's a flag. It's a Ukrainian flag. That's what it is. Um, and I, you know, if I were talking to someone about it, I would probably try to get the the emotional root of why they feel the need to do it. Um, so what I would probably ask some kind of silly questions at the beginning, like, oh, do you feel confused about, you think people are confused about your gender? Do people, you, you get misgendered a lot? You feel like it's important, right? And, and of course, most, they're going to be like, well, no, I'm like, I don't feel misgendered, but you know, okay. So um, that maybe will, you know, that line of questioning and starting there might get them to start thinking about some of the symbolism, like, oh, well, then, then what is it? Like, they might... They might not really recognize that it's a symbol consciously. I mean, they I think subconsciously they know, but they might not really recognize that this is a symbol um, and it's a tribal allegiance symbol. Um, and once they understand that it's a tribal allegiance symbol, which I think if you don't use language like virtue signal, which which you know has connotations or, or you know they might uh, get quote triggered by, um, once they understand that they're doing it to signal support in the same way that they put a Black Lives Matter sign up and. Uh, on their lawn or whatever. Um, as soon as as soon as you get them to understand that, then you can kind of dive into okay now because the real conversation that needs to be had is what is this trans activist movement, right? Because I think um, if someone understands the trans activist movement. I mean, the, the bigger problem is not that they're putting the pronouns in their bio, right? It's that it's that they actually want to support this movement out of out of ignorance or whatever. So, it's that problem that needs to be solved. Like you need to you need to be able to explain to them what this movement actually is. That this is not a positive movement about you know being nice to Blair White. This is a this is a destructive and negative movement, and and that's the conversation that you need to have. Once once you convince them of that, maybe you talk about, by the way, like, let's talk about women's sports. Let's talk about um, the child abuse, literally, that happens with uh, transitioning medically. Um, so you have those kind of conversations. Once they understand that, the feeling of need to signal support for that kind of vanishes, right? So... Um, so if they don't, let's assuming they don't think their gender is confusing to other people, they're doing it to signal. Um, you know, I guess another argument you could kind of make here is, well, you're, you're, if you don't think your gender is confusing to other people, then you're kind of misrepresenting your perception of reality to yourself and your others because you don't think your gender is ambiguous, but you're implying you're pretending that your gender is ambiguous. You're pretending that it's necessary, right? Um, in other words, you're kind of lying to yourself, kind of like 1984, right? Uh, you know, you believe it despite what your eyes tell you or whatever in, in 1984. Um, but let's talk about, so, so they might say, okay, well, yeah, but the issue, I don't think my gender is ambiguous, but the issue is gender is a spectrum and blah, 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 right? okay, get them on the gender spectrum conversation. Like, why do they think gender is a spectrum? Probably because they heard it. So now that needs to be debunked. So, I, you know, in unpacking this whole thing, I usually like to start from the very beginning and say, okay, let's separate sex from gender. Let's just separate those two things right now. Um, and because that's important. And, and I would say, okay, let's start with something simple. 
is it accurate to say that humans have 10 digits on their hands? We recognize that some people are born with anomalies, right? I, right? But do we not know how many digits humans have on their hands? When you go to buy gloves, do you go up to the sales counter and say, I need gloves, but for five fingers on each hand, that, that's my configuration of hands, right? Do you, do you feel, like, is it necessary to specify that? right um and should we normalize declaring the number of fingers that you have right should you start conversations with like well as a 10 digit person i think blah 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 like that would be kind of insane i think i think they might agree that that's silly they might say that you're this is a straw man and it's weird but the truth is that humans have two sexes way more than they have 10 genders 10 fingers i mean 10 like Okay, actual intersex, which is chromosomal, uh, the, the chromosomes don't match, the chromosomal configuration doesn't match the phenotypical uh, configuration, or the phenotype is unclassifiable. It's not, um, you can't tell, right? Like, uh, you know, hermaphrodites and stuff, right? So of the people that are that, and this, will, this is not what you hear, but this is, these are the facts. I, I can point to some articles if you want. Maybe I'll put them in. Let me see if I have them in my reference section. Uh, I don't, but I'll find them and I'll put them in, I'll put them in links. Beverly will remind me to put these links. 0.018% of the population, you heard that. 0.018% of the population is actually intersex. And again, that's the, the, they're, chromosomal does not match the phenotypical or the phenotype is unclassifiable. Those are the two, right? So you would have like X, Y, but, uh, but your phenotype would be uh, female, right? Or your phenotype is kind of on, you'd have, you know, female genitalia, but X, Y or whatever like that, or your phenotype is unclassifiable. 0.018%. Now, by the by, I looked this up. Um, you want to know how many people have a different number than 10 digits? 0.272%. So more than 10 times as many people. So uh, that's a big, that's a much, much more common. Um, and yet we're not running around saying, uh, I need gloves, but for, but for five fingers on each hand. Um, so something's different here. Now, Sex difference matters. I'm not talking about gender right now. I'm talking about sex. Sex difference matters, and I think you can have this conversation pretty clearly. Sex difference matters when it comes to sports due to sexual dimorphism, right? Like, obviously, it matters it, more than just sports, but sports is a great way to start. Like, look, you know, you can cite bone density and muscle mass and blah, blah, blah. Like, look, they, they are, there is a sexual dimorphism and it's different. Yes, there's overlap sometimes in, in, um, uh, those phenotypical attributes, but especially when you're competing at the highest level, you're taking the best of each uh, sex, and there's not much of an overlap there at all, right? Because you're taking the extreme end of the male and the extreme end of the female, and those do not overlap, right? That's why, uh, <laughs> that's why no one's complaining. I mean, did you, it's so obvious, like ask them, why do you think people are only complaining about, uh, male to female people in female sports, and no one's complaining about female to male transitioners in male sports. Why is that is? I mean, there's an obvious, like the answer is glaring. 
is because sexual dimorphism actually is a thing. One's a problem, the other isn't. We don't have to worry about women who transition to men who want to play in the NBA. Go for it. You won't make it. Like, it just, it's probably never going to happen. Maybe there'll be some anomaly, but like, it's not a problem. Right? The other way is around a problem, specifically because there are sex differences. So, like, that's why it's a problem. Um, so, this actual dimorphism in sex does lead in society and has for, you know, all of human history, it leads to expectations and norms that get classified as gender norms that correspond to sex. So, um, and by the way, I'm adopting intentionally some of their, their language just so that we don't have to like really get into arguments about, <laughs> you know, some of the deeper stuff, but like, okay, uh, woman is the gender word we use for female man is what we use for male, right? And to the extent that there's a spectrum, we use words like feminine and masculine, right? And feminine mean you're more like a woman, not more like a female, more like a woman, right? Um, and masculine means you're more like a man. And of course, you can have women who are more masculine and guys who are more feminine. Now, gender dysphoria is when sex doesn't match the gender norm that you feel. That's what that is. So, um, you know, you are you are female, but you don't feel like the gender norm of a woman. And of course, like I said, um, we use woman to refer to female, but we use woman uh, as kind of the gendered word to refer to the females. And then we say, well, women are feminine. Women on general are more feminine than men. <laughs> but some women are a little bit more masculine than some men who are a little bit more feminine, right? Like that's, that's how that language works. Um, and of course, the answer to something like gender dysphoria, which is also rare, the answer to something like this in the late 20th century when I was growing up is, well, Look, we recognize, hey, breaking the gender norm is, is okay. We shouldn't really criticize people. For David Bowie, have at it, man. Right? You're a feminine man. That's fine, David Bowie. You do your thing, or Boy George, whatever, right? Um, or you can be a masculine woman. Tomboy, it's okay. We don't let's not pressure people too much to conform to their gender norms. That was kind of the answer in the eighties and the nineties. Uh, and but we of course we said well David Bowie's still obviously a man and the reason we said that was because he's a male and we use the word man to refer to males so we just said well he's feminine sometimes right or boy George is feminine sometimes um, and there's examples of the other way in fact um, a really old example is my my daughter when she was young used to read the Enid Blyton series um, which is written in like the 40s and 50s. Um, well, there's a couple series, but the Famous Five was, she read Mallory Towers and Famous Five. Um, and there's a girl in that called Georgina who goes by George because she's kind of tomboy, right? Um, and that that's an old, that's a pretty old example of like tomboys being acceptable or, or girls struggling with their tomboy nature a little bit. Um, Scout and To Kill a Mockingbird, Mulan, The Princess and Brave, right? Watts in Some Kind of Wonderful. These are all tomboys. So, okay. In other words, the, the solution that society was kind of coming towards was don't take gender norms so seriously. Don't, don't be so judgmental about someone who's not exactly fitting a gender norm. Be accepting of, of someone like David Bowie. Now, the answer today is kind of the opposite. 
The answer today is now, well, gender norms are everything, and they're very strict. So um, if you feel like you're the, uh, the wrong gender, then uh, if, you, if you feel like you don't fit into this strict gender norm, then you must be a different gender, right? Um, and, that's, that's, and that's how we deal with gender dysphoria now, right? Um, and obviously gender dysphoria is psychological, not biological. It's not the biological intersex stuff that I'm talking about. Um, so if you, if you're slightly outside and, and, and worse than that, then we've taken gender and we've more strongly linked it to sex than in the past, right? We've said, well, if you feel like you're the other gender, let's take, you know, let's rewind and, and look at Georgina, George from the famous five series book series. It's a kid's book series. Okay. Well, George. George feels like she's more of a tomboy, right? She doesn't feel like she conforms to the feminine, uh, the female gender norm, right, of the, being a woman. Okay, well, uh, I guess you must be the other gender. You must be a man. And not only must you be the other gender, that implies now you must also be the other sex automatically. So your sex is wrong. Now we need hormones and surgery, and we rush them into this thing, which is child abuse. And we can talk about Tavistock and all that kind of stuff being shut down. Um, that's super destructive. Uh, so, so walking through this and helping people understand what the difference between them is and what what's going on now is this really tight linkage of... Uh, there's really tight rules around gender norms and then linkage of gender norms back to, to biology, back to sex in a way that doesn't make any sense um, and, and is destructive. You're hurting people by doing that. Um, and I guess one other thing to point out is, you know, you'll hear things like gender is a social construct, blah, 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 blah. A social construct means that other people decide you don't decide. So let me give you some examples. And I, they're trying to ruin all these social constructs, quote, social constructs, by the way. But it's it's good to think about them now before they're completely dead. Uh, beauty. Well, we don't tolerate people running around demanding that we call them pretty. I mean, Tess Holiday accepted. We don't, we don't run around. We don't, like, if someone's like, you have to call me pretty. I'm like, no. I decide whether you're pretty. Um... We don't tolerate people demanding that we call them good. You've got to call me a good person. No. I decide whether I think you're a good person. Right? We don't tolerate people saying, you, like Trump could have gone around and said, like, well, CNN, you have to call me brilliant because I am a genius. I'm like, no. Nope. We can have our own opinion of you. Similarly, if I don't perceive you as a particular gender, I won't tolerate your demands that I call you ma'am. That's not how gender works. If it's a social construct, well, first of all, if it's biological, if we're going to talk about sex, you're a dude based on your sex. Uh, but if you're, if we're going to say, well, it's a social construct, then fine. I I get to decide, which is why if you're passing, I'll just not even know and call you ma'am, right? But it's my perception of you, not your perception of yourself. You don't get to create the perception of yourself. Um, and that isolates you from feedback from reality. You need feedback from reality to grow as an individual. If imagine a child that was raised in like, I want you to call me smart and good and beautiful and perfect. 
all the time and nothing I ever do is, is like, you can never, no matter what I do, I'm always those things. You can imagine what kind of a horrible person that kid grows up to be. And we see some examples of that from really bad parenting where parents try and be friends with their kids and they don't wanna have any boundaries or whatever. You end up with these spoiled brats. That's what you end up with here, except for not only are they spoiled brats, but they end up uh, taking a knife to themselves or hiring someone to like cut things off and make them sterile and do all this. So the horribly self-destructive stuff because no one stopped. No one said, no, that's not what you are. You're not a dragon. You're not Superman. And you're not a female. You're not a woman. Right? You might want to be those things. Doesn't make it true. Um... So, you know, I ordinarily in a vacuum, I might say, yeah, you want to put your pronouns in the bio and no one's demanding you to do it. You just feel like doing it. It will be a weird thing to do. It would be like me putting like, I have 10 fingers. Like, okay, uh, you could do that. It's kind of weird. But now I would say, don't do that. Because now it implies your adherence to this ideology, which is... Um, literally destroying, especially kids, um, it's literally destroying people and it's creating psychological dysfunction. It's hurting people on a mass scale. And it's not, you need to draw a distinction between, it's not treating trans people nicely. That's not what it is. That's not what it is. It's faking reality for them. And that is actually treating them with disrespect. That is treating them uh, like subhuman creatures who can't handle the truth. The truth is the guy in that store in that famous video is like, it's ma'am, blah, blah, blah. The truth is he needs to be told, it's not ma'am. Dude, you do not pass. I'm sorry, but you don't. And passing matters. Right? Passing matters because we're reflecting back to you what gender norm you appear to be, what what gender, you, like, this is what you look like. So, you know, maybe if Blair White goes into the store, people might call her ma'am or miss or whatever because I just used her, I didn't even think about it, right? Because she passes and people are like, okay, well, they don't know any better. They're reflecting back to her that she looks like a woman. That's what that means, she looks like a woman, All right? But if you reflect back to someone something other than the truth, right? It might seem like a little thing, but it's not. And even in relationships, like if your wife says to you, um, let's say she has a dress that you absolutely hate, that you despise, you think is the most disgusting, ugly dress on the planet. You don't have to be that rude, but imagine that that's what you think about this dress. And she puts the dress on and she says, Honey, what do you think of this dress? Should I wear this dress? What, do you like this dress? Well, you don't have to be rude about it, but you can say, you know, it's not my favorite dress, actually. I, I, I prefer this other one. Okay, that's reflecting reality back to her in a kinder way. But if you say, yeah, it's beautiful, you're awesome, I love that dress. You look gorgeous in that dress. It's the best dress, if, that, if you think that's what she wants to hear, and you give her that. Well, what's going to happen is... What could happen? I mean, that will bite you in the ass someday. She might wear that dress to something that you're like totally embarrassed by because you don't think she looks good or, or someone else 
Like she'll get treated in a way of like, oh, you look bad. And she'll be like, I thought I looked good. Like you're lying doesn't help people. She probably honestly wants to know. Well, perhaps in that case, she doesn't want to honestly know. But often they honestly, people honestly want to know. They want that feedback, right? And it's even if they don't want it, it's important to give them when solicited. Uh, and in casual ways by using pronouns that you think match them, right? It's important to give them feedback about reality so they see how they're perceived in reality, what what reality is, what they are in reality, so that they're not running around thinking, uh, you know, like literally there was a TikTok video where uh, I think Beverly had it on Token Minority Report where like someone's pronouns were fish and fish self. Like, you don't want them running around thinking they're a fish. They can't breathe underwater. They are not a fish. Right? That's just, it's not healthy to say, sure, I'll use fish and fish self. Right? Um, and people might think that's crazy, but that's obviously, that's, that is happening. And that is uh, an extreme case, but that's where this is going. And similar, if someone, you know, you tell someone, oh, yeah, you're, you're a woman, you're a woman, you're a woman, and then they go try out for a sports team, and the sports team is like, ah, you're a biological man, we don't want you here on this woman's sports team. They get all pissed off, because they're like, well, I'm a woman. Like, well, no, if someone had told you earlier that you really weren't, maybe you wouldn't be so angry and upset about not making the women's sports team. Anyway, I, I don't I don't know on that. I, I'm not sure exactly what that question was, but I, I hope I helped uh, think through some of this stuff for you guys, and if there's stuff I'm missing, please tell me. Uh, we can talk about it next time. So we can always do more. Uh, I want to continue doing these like arguments that, that we're struggling with. Like what, how do we respond to this kind of stuff? So just to summarize on that one, how I would respond, I probably wouldn't go after the pronoun usage stuff first. I would try and ask questions about what their motivation was and get into a real discussion about uh, it being a signal for trans activism and what trans activism actually is and is not actually being nice to trans people it is this kind of destructive uh, ideology, and we didn't even get into the uh, the problems with compelled speech. Um, so, which is another aspect of it you can throw in there. So, all right, I think that's it, everyone. Uh, thank you for for being here with me today. Um, I don't think we. I'm looking through chat. I think we're. I think we're good. Um, let's see. Yep, I think we're good. Enormous thank you to those of uh, those of you who uh, continue to support us financially. Um, I hate being salesy and begging, but it really does help. So thank you so much. You get your name in the credits. You get in Discord. You get to argue with me. Tell me I'm wrong. I'm sure Mo will say how many horrible things I said wrong in Discord today. Um, and he earned this privilege by uh, being a supporter. Um, in addition to this show, Dangerous Thoughts, uh, anything you do to support Unsafe Space helps all of our other series. Earlier today, we had Rebel Civics, which is hosted by Keith Bissett. I think he interviewed Benjamin Schaffer uh, from Goldback, which is like a physical gold, like they're like paper gold. But it's, it's like, I think gold plated paper, gold, I don't know, deposited gold on paper, whatever. It's a, it's a gold currency. Um, on Tuesdays, we have 451 Degrees with Alex Maselli. I think this uh, last Tuesday, yesterday, she talked about Salman Rushdie's stabbing. She focuses on censorship and big tech usually. Mondays, we have Narrative Dissonance with Juliet Dillon and me. 
uh, where we try and get a panel of journalists to talk about the news. We've kind of strayed from that uh, past couple weeks, but we're going to get back to that as the focus of, of how we do the show. Um, and uh, and there's even something for the kids uh, on Thursday tomorrow, tomorrow night. Every Thursday we have Token Minority Report with Beverly and Alex, and it's you know it's pop culture stuff. So um, yeah, it's more fun than I am. It's more pop culture-y. There's sometimes there's geese involved, and I think they mock me quite a lot on it. At least Beverly does, but you know, hey. Uh, also, book club. We have book club that we do uh, about once a month on Sundays. The next book is on September 25th, uh, which is the Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. Um, that is a just in case you don't know, that's a fiction book, uh, and it, it is the uh, it, it's what caused or instigated the fatwa that was issued against him years ago. And um, and I think there's a bounty of $5 million on him, and it's why it's probably why he was stabbed recently. Um, so we're going to so we're gonna read that. You can um, you can go to unsafespace.com, and there's a book club section. You can uh, buy, buy the book through links there if you want to get involved in that. You still have time to do that. And the next book after that is October 30th, and that's Slaughterhouse-Five. You can find that also on our website. So thanks again, everyone. Have a great evening. I will, um, I will see you on Monday for Narrative Dissonance. And Beverly, in all of her glory, and Alex, we'll see you uh, tomorrow for Token Minority Report. Take care. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may increase your carbon footprint. Please eat the bugs to offset your impact. Association with the following co-conspirators will result in a fine of 150 ESG points. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't think about it, I mean, that's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.